Hey, I'm Roberta Blevins, and this is Life After MLM, a podcast where we work to help end the stigma of failure in an industry systemically designed for you to fail. Join us as we dive into the real-life stories of survivors, experts, and advocates as we debunk the common myths and fallacies of cults, frauds, scams, and multi-level marketing. Join us all month for stories of true crime, true con, and urban legends from around the world. Happy Halloween, Huns! Hunbots and Hunbros. First, I want to apologize for the late episode. I know people that are like behind and catching up don't realize this was late, but it was like a day and a half late. And that is uh, due to a couple different factors. Uh, one of them was I was out of town all weekend at Obsessed Fest getting to hang out and meet you guys, which was really, really incredible. I had a fantastic time, got to finally meet a lot of the people that I have met on this podcasting journey and hang out with them and just really connect with friends that I had never met in person before. It was a really wonderful experience, um, and I am very thankful that I got the opportunity to do that. I'm still a little hoarse. We wooed a lot. There was lots of screaming. There was a Taylor Swift sing-along that you know that I was right up in. We had a drag brunch where I wooed my little heart out, and just an incredible weekend that makes me sound like this now. So not great for a podcaster but we're working through it. I think most of my voice is back by now. I'm just like, someone was like, you sound like Sophia Bush. And I was like, whatever, I'll take it. I I got a little bit of a raspy voice. This is what it's going to sound like today. We've got one, aside from this episode, we have one more episode for the month of true crime. And it is really great. And I'm really excited to bring all of these stories to you. But one of the things that I asked early on was I asked for ghost stories from people. And I said, if you have ghost stories, I really want to hear them. I'm really, really excited. And so in this episode, we are going to get three additional ghost stories. One is a listener, Ashley Ross, who has seriously the cutest plushes ever. She runs the account on TikTok called The Cuddle Cult. And links are in the show notes because her stuff is freaking phenomenal. And then uh, one of the things that I had to skip to go to Obsess Fest was the I Got Out Story Jam, which I have been working on the back end the better part of this year. Michelle went uh, and I went to Obsessed Fest, so we represented both places. But one of the cool things was at breakfast, Michelle recorded Sarah Edmondson telling us a ghost story that relates to Keith Raniere and also to Pam. It's just a really, it's cool. And I'm going to tell you one of my stories too from the time that I lived in Atlanta, uh, a haunted house that I lived in. So that'll be up in a second. But I just wanted to say thank you to our newest Patreon members before we start. We have so many free members. I am so excited. Check out all of the stuff that's still available before all of our tiers change and everything gets different. And now is a really great time to join for free to see what we offer. So, you know, in the future, you might want to subscribe. Every single one of those dollars goes to help produce this show. And I really appreciate you guys. So thank you so much to Kayla Lee. And thank you so much to Britta Wilhelm. You guys are the real ones. Like I said, I would not be able to do this without the fans. And I really, really, really appreciate every single cent. And I want to let you know the next episode is extra heavy. And that's why this episode is going to be heavy with the extras. 
I didn't want to muddy anything or take anything away from Emily's story on Sunday. And so you are getting all of the extras that would have been in that episode in this episode instead. Please enjoy these ghost stories and this bonus episode with my friend Jamie from Murderish as we talk about an active murder case right now that has a strange MLM tie. Enjoy. Okay, so Ashley, you're here on the show to tell us a ghost story. So I'm going to give you the floor. So this happened in uh, the fall of 2002. So it's been a little over 20 years, but I still remember it because I I talk about this like once a month. Like I said, I ask all my clients if they've ever seen a ghost. Depending on how they answer, I will tell them this story. It was my sophomore year of college. And I was uh, going out with my boyfriend at the time, and we were learned. We were teaching me how to drive. Actually, he wanted me to do some freeway driving. So we, I live in Cleveland, so we were driving out to like the southwest side of Cleveland to a haunted house called Bloodview. And haunted houses don't bother me, um, so that's not that's not impactful. But that's just where we were. So we went out and we. Uh, went to the haunted house and I actually knew some people that were in the haunted house and I didn't realize that I knew that they worked there. So that was kind of fun. But afterwards uh, we went and it was like t- probably like 1030, like 1045 at night. And uh, we got in the car and we were trying to find something to eat because we hadn't had anything to eat all day. And we found a Burger King and, and I want it like, I wish that I had more of an understanding of the west side of Cleveland because I grew up on the east side. So I don't actually know what city we ended up in to get food. Burger King, and we got like chicken nuggets and fries and whatever. And we went like maybe a block or two away from the Burger King to um, like a little, it wasn't, it was like a rectangle of grass with like a gazebo in the center. And you could park kind of on every side. And we parked... Um, on the far side, so the main street was to the left of us, and then there was grass with the gazebo, and then we were parked on the street, and then to the right of us was a caboose, and the caboose was just that, on train tracks, surrounded by gravel, and it was definitely more, like, decorative. Like, we have someplace in Olmstead Falls that's very similar, that's, like, a engine that you can, like, climb on and look in and stuff. But this was a caboose. It was not an engine. With like a stretch of train track that was just enough to hold the caboose and like some rocks and stuff. So it was more decorative. Like, I don't know if there used to be a train track there or whatever, but that is what I remember. There was a gazebo and then there was grass and us and then this random caboose. 25, 30 feet from the gazebo and like 10, 15 feet from the caboose. We were pretty much parked next to the caboose. And so we were sitting there and we were eating and I was looking out the front windshield onto like the residential street that we were parked on because it was kind of windy outside and it was dark and it was a full moon. And so there was like a lot of like light dancing off the leaves and I'm an art student. So I was like, Ooh, this is beautiful. And uh, I was kind of watching it 
and he was looking out the passenger side window. So he was talking to me, but like over across my face, looking out toward the caboose. Sitting there, we were eating, we were talking about like, it was so weird that, you know, my friend worked there and I didn't know he worked there and how like, you know, I was doing on my driving because he was trying to teach me. And in the middle of us eating, I saw this guy and he walked from where I was on the passenger side in front of the windshield um, and he was dressed in like linen shirt, like someone that worked on the train, like maybe in like the coal kind of situation, like that kind of like paper boy flat cap kind of situation and like suspenders. And he walked in front of our car and disappeared when he got to the driver's side. So he walked in front of our car and then just stopped walking. Like he was just gone once he got to the other side of the windshield. And I was the only person that saw him because like I said, my boyfriend was looking outside my passenger side window. I was looking out the windshield. So apparently I turned sheet white, started mumbling. We have to go, we have to go, we have to go now. And he was like, why? And I was like, I'll tell you when we leave to turn on the car, we have to go. <laughs> so like he even, like I did, didn't realize how white I had turned. And like, normally, like I said, things don't bother me. Like I watch horror movies all the time, Halloween, all that stuff. I was enjoying like the spookiness of the leaves, but that whole, the fact that that person did not come to the other side of the car and keep walking was probably the scariest thing I've ever seen. I was, I was not ready. And the fact that there was, there was a train there kind of like, I don't know if it was like a residual thing and he walked across the street every day looking for the rest of his train or like what, but it was, I, I wish I, there had been camera phones back then because we didn't even have text messages back then, but I love it. And I love telling people that story. And he, I wish, I wish he had seen it because I wish he could have said like, I saw it too, but he wasn't looking in the windshield. So was he like a train conductor or something? He wasn't a conductor because he wasn't dressed in like the like the typical like white or blue coat kind of situation. He almost seemed like someone that would shovel the coal or someone that worked in like a train depot kind of situation. So he had like the loose linen shirt and the suspenders holding up like linen pants and a like that paperboy flat cap kind of situation. He was definitely more of a worker. He just walked across the street and disappeared. So he just showed up, didn't even look at you, and just walked straight across the street and disappeared? Yeah, like he was just headed someplace, and we just happened to be in his, like, space. And the fact that we were in the car, I couldn't see if he had legs. I only saw him from, like, the car hood up. But he was very solid. Like, I wouldn't, I when I first saw him, I was like, what a weird, I wonder if he's getting off work and he works at this caboose. Like, it was such a weird interaction either like anyway but the fact that he didn't continue on and keep walking through that park was what like really freaked me out and you he was solid he was solid enough that i did not question it until he stopped existing you couldn't okay so you couldn't see through him no he was solid to me i mean but again you don't expect to just see you're just out there in you know like 10 30 11 o'clock at night eating chicken nuggets you don't expect to see a person but then you're just like oh there's someone crossing the road did you ever hear any stories of people seeing something similar or ghost stories in that area 
I'm not familiar or I wasn't familiar with that side of town because I grew up on the east side. Like I was probably like an hour away from where I grew up because a lot of haunted house options back then. And so we just went to like the most popular one. So I'm not even at this point, I'm not super familiar with Broadview Heights, which is where that was or is. I don't even know if Bloodview is still a haunted house. So I don't know what city we ended up in. And I have tried multiple times to use like Google Maps and try to look around to see where we might have ended up. But it's been 20 years. Is that Burger King still there? Is that train caboose still there? I don't know. I don't know actually where we were. We just kind of drove around until we found a Burger King. Wow. That was still open. That's really cool. I love ghost stories. Yeah, I really, I wish that I had more experiences because I thought that was so cool. And I love watching those like ghost hunter shows, <laughs> listening to all the like EVPs and stuff. Um, and like I said, I wish that there had been like cameras and stuff back then on phones. Yeah. Wow. And like I said, I stuff like that doesn't like freak me out. So people are always like, oh, you know, you were just like, you know, super sensitive because you went to a haunted house. But like, not only do those things not affect me, but I hung out with people that were working there before we left. If there's anything that's going to like separate the spookiness, it's seeing your friends in the makeup, you know, after, after the fact. I was only 19 or 20. Let's see, it was 2002. So I was 19. I wish that by my boyfriend at the time had seen it, but he was looking in a totally different direction. which I, I won't tell the whole story. Or let, I don't know, you want to hear it? Yes, yeah, I okay. do want to hear okay, it. Okay, I'm gonna, I will. You, are you I recording? Won't yeah, okay. I want to say, like, a couple years after we got out, so Keith was in jail, Pam has died. Pam died before we left next to him. And we were in recovery, and if, one thing is that my kids never wanted to sleep in their room, and we're in a condo where we have a master bedroom, and the kids have the double like bunk bed. It's a small, like, 1,200-square-foot condo. And they're always coming into our bed. They never want to sleep in their bunk bed. And sometimes they come into our bed, and then I'll be like, fuck it, I'm going to go to their room so I can have them, like, which is musical beds at night, right? Have a decent night's <laughs> sleep. Have a good night's sleep. So I think my boys were with, with my husband, and I was in the bottom bunk. And in the middle of the night, like 2 or 3 in the morning, on the top shelf, so, like, there's the bed, and then there's a desk, and there's a shelf above the desk where all, like, those toys are. And I put things up there to, like, rotate toys, right? And in the middle of the night, 2 or 3 in the morning, all of a sudden... I hear a noise, and there was this, Troy had this, like, plastic globe that my aunt had given him that was, like, um, a magnifying glass went around the globe, and you could spin it, and it was like, oh, today, you know, welcome to London, you know, and, oh, yeah, it, and yeah. it would, like, right. be in an accent, and then there'd be, like, today we're going to Australia, you know, and, and, it, and you'd move the, the magnifying glass, and it would say something in an accent, and there's a little plane that went around the globe, and it was a little plastic toy. Middle of the night, it starts spinning. Red, white, yellow, green, blue, like a, like a disco ball spinning. Oh my god! And 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 saying things like, "Welcome to welcome to like 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 on the fritz like but like super like a poltergeist in the fucking room and spinning and and like woke me up and I was in fight or flight obviously my my all the hair on my arms was raised I was freezing in the room. 
I was like, what in the actual fuck? And I took it off. And this, I went and used it probably for like a year and a half. Like it was, mm-hmm. as far as I knew, a dead toy. You know what I mean? <laughs> dead batteries or whatever. Took, I took out the batteries. I put it in the living room. Told Nippy what happened. Went back to bed. And I just, and, and, I, and, I, and I, like, couldn't sleep because I was so freaked out. Like I just felt something in the room. So meanwhile, I have a woman named Claudia who multiple people have said, go see Claudia. And I didn't for a long time because I was super skeptical or whatever. And finally I went to see her and she's like a spiritual, like she does smudging and like crystals. And she's, and I talked to, like, I talked to her about stuff. She's incredible. Anyway, like Claudia, I, there's something in my house. And I knew that she did like cleansing. So she came over with sage and candles. She had never been to my house. And she's like, for sure there's something in this room. There's something in the room. And she was like, I don't know what it is. Is there anything remnants? of like anything Nexium in here. I'm like, there's nothing. Like I've got rid of everything. And so I'm looking at the shelf where the globe was and under there's this like row of books that I was waiting, that Troy was too young for, like Harry Potter or something given him. And then I take down the row of books and behind it, there was a little brown box (gasps) that I'd forgotten that I'd put there. And the box was given to us when I was, was, when we were a year before we left Nexium, we were in Fiji. Okay, with the inner circle, I didn't know it was the inner circle then, but like, whatever, the inner circle, plus my husband and I and two other people that weren't really in the inner inner circle, brought to us by Pam, who was still alive. She was, at this point, she was dying of cancer, we knew that, and her dying wish was to go to Fiji with her close friends and spend some quality time together. So it was like 23, 24 of us. And Claire Bronfman had made, as a parting gift for us, from Keith to Pam, a little brown box that said something like, and I've since burned it, so I don't remember exactly, but it's something about, like, to Pam, your smile and warmth will know no balance, or something like that, like some love note to Pam from KR. So it was a little brown kind of coffin, like a mini, like, like a keepsake box to remember Pam with. That oh we all God. got one, a made in Fiji, engraved from Keith to Pam that we had. From Keith from to Pam. Pam. That Claire, and all got we all got that one that Claire, gave, Claire gave to us. Holy fuck. Yeah, and so that was like right was underneath. Like, the I'm thinking, like, what was the original intention for everyone to have some ashes or something? I, I, I don't even actually know. Maybe to have ashes or just to, like, have a little. Like, it, to me, there was always, like, what it looked like at the time and what I think it was now. I think it was, like, a little mini, like, coffin remind, like, a little. Like, she's dying, and here's a reminder of it. Like, I don't know. It's very morbid. But either way, I'm almost 100% sure that the there was Pam's spirit was in the room saying, like, this is still here. Like, Let right me go. There. I'm still here. Just so you know this. Like, I'm in your room. And, like, or it was Keith from the jail cell being voodoo-ish and trying to fuck with my head. I don't know. But he does he, not have that power. Yeah. <laughs> he does not have that power. He's in my head. He was in my head. So I, I wasn't sure at the time if it was him trying to fuck with me or Pam from the other side but either way something was in my room and made that globe spin that would freak me out Mm -hmm. you said I burned it yeah obviously (laughs) what else are you gonna do you can't keep that and I actually have it on camera and I gave it to the vow this was before the vow came out I remember like as I I filmed it and I put it in my the you know wood fire no I filmed I filmed me putting the box into the she just never mentioned into the wood stove at my dad's cabin which is fueled by a wood stove so I did kind of moment and I watched it burn and it was a big that's great so I do have that on camera somewhere that's so cool that's so, so cool yeah. Yeah. actually and did you do that thing that you said earlier of, you know 
Oh yeah, oh yeah. So that was the other thing I was gonna say. I felt the presence in there other times since then. So I would, I and so what she told me to do was to stand up, and I actually said to, because I like if Keith was in my head, I'd be like, "Fuck you, right. fuck you," like as right. loud as I could with my whole force. Like, yeah. you fucking welcome here, like just fuck right off, and like it would go. Yeah. And, I was like, and then, I, and like, and then other times when it felt like a more peaceful entity, I'd be like, "Just go, like you're not wanted here." Like I would get up in the night and like talk to the corner of the room like a crazy person. Oh, yeah. But it was that there were like. There and so were, to the kid, that's so interesting. So yeah. it was residual even after the box was gone. A little bit, yeah, because the kids just didn't feel comfortable in there. Well, they have the memory. Of, yeah. You know. Yeah, and the association, by association. Yeah, yeah. They said it was 55 minutes when I put in their shit, should be rent right now. That is wild, Sarah. That happened, yeah. Wow. That's my ghost story. <laughs> So this story goes back to the time when I was living in Atlanta, Georgia. I lived in Atlanta in my 20s. I want to say it was 2007 was the year that I lived in Atlanta, Georgia. And I lived in this little part of town called Grant Park, which is near the zoo. It's in this park. It's got this great little neighborhood. It's very close to the Capitol building. Like if we could get onto our roof, you would have been able to see the Atlanta Capitol, the gold dome from our roof. I was very, very close. It's a little walking town. It's near Oakland Cemetery, which is really a relic of the past in terms of cemeteries. It was a Civil War cemetery. It is just a sight to be seen. Atlanta was like a medical hub during the Civil War. And so soldiers, if they were sick, injured, dying, if they were close to Atlanta, they would get shipped there. And there are a lot of restless souls that live in the city of Atlanta. But I lived in this bright yellow house on Oakland Avenue, and it seriously was one of the best years of my life, just living somewhere that wasn't California and just enjoying a completely different culture. Seriously, like hands down, Atlanta has some of the best food I've ever had, and I have not been able to recreate or find something in Southern California that's as close. So you guys might not have like really good Mexican food, but I will also give you like your white queso dip is fantastic. Okay. Like credit where credit is due. So I lived in this house and I lived with three other women, really cool people. And we just sort of like did our own thing. I was still going back and forth to California doing hair. And so I was home a lot because I would work and then I would sort of work from home. And so I was the one that was always home and I always experienced weird little things. And as I started to ask questions, I realized that my roommates also would notice weird little things. My roommate that lived downstairs in the finished basement was a waitress. And so she would bring home lots of cash tips and change. And what she would do is she would stack her change up on her dresser, quarters, nickels, dimes, pennies, whatever. She would stack them all up in nice little stacks. And I remember one day she came home and she was like, was anybody in my room today? which would be like a totally weird thing. I'm like, no, like I was the only one home today. Nobody's been anywhere. I'm the only one here. She said, somebody like knocked all my coins over, like, like just really like violently pushed them all over. Like we didn't have a cat. So there was no explanation. Like a pet had done it or anything like that. I was like, that's strange. She's like, it's fine. I don't know. Like maybe I bumped the dresser before I left and I just didn't notice it. I think you would notice though, like knocking over, (laughs) dozens of dollars in coins. You know what I mean? 
So that was one thing. Um, I had another roommate who said one time she opened up the basement door to the face of a Confederate soldier in her face. Uh, brass buttons, hat, long hair, beard, the whole shebang, who quickly turned and she saw sort of the hair sort of flow. And I was like, we live near the cemetery. Like, totally. That could check out, right? And then my other roommate would see as she would sit on the couch the figure of somebody like walking behind her and we lived on the street. So it could have been somebody walking along the street, but we were far enough back from the street that it wasn't somebody on the street. And and she looked through the window and couldn't see, and she looked behind her and there was nobody behind her. But when she looked back to the window, the reflection of the figure was still walking behind her. So she said, anytime that would happen, she would just go upstairs and spend the rest of the time upstairs. Well, for me, I was very curious because What I experienced were things being misplaced, um, doors sort of sticking or locking without them even locking. Like the refrigerator, it was really hard to open the refrigerator door and it was like a brand new fridge, so it shouldn't have been difficult. But oftentimes it felt like something was holding the door shut as I was trying to open it. But the main thing that I noticed living in that house in Atlanta was the smell of smoke. Because being from Southern California, that is something that you learn very early on. You learn what the smell of a house fire smells like. It's not a campfire. It's not a chimney. It's melting plastic and polyester and wood. And it just smells different. We have so many wildfires out here. We know the difference between a house fire and a campfire, a wildfire, everything. And I was smelling melting plastic burning. And I always would freak out going, Did somebody leave a candle? Is somebody's room on fire? And I would go around to all the rooms in the house and I would smell and I would check and I could never find anything. So then I would run outside and I would scan the sky for smoke. Again, Southern Californians understand scanning the sky going, where's the smoke that I'm smelling? I smelled it all the time. None of us smoked. It didn't smell like cigarettes. It literally smelled like a burning house. So one day someone stole our lawnmower Um, Shame on me for keeping it in the backyard. But someone stole our lawnmower and our grass started to get really, really long. Like I said, like our house was set back from the from the road quite a bit. And so as that grass got really tall, it became pretty obvious that we were unable to maintain the lawn. And so a nice young guy that lived down the street, a couple houses down, came by one day when I was outside and he asked me if he could help me mow the lawn. I said, oh, my God, like that would be so great. I would really appreciate that. I said, you know, like, how much do you want? And he goes, no, I don't want payment. I don't want payment at all. And I said, well, can I make you some cookies? And he's like, that would be great. I said, okay, you mow the lawn. I'll go make sweet tea and some cookies. And then I have some questions about this neighborhood that I'd like to ask you when we're done. And he obliged. He cut our lawn and he joined me on our porch and we ate chocolate chip cookies and drank sweet tea. We sat down and I asked him, how long have you lived here? He said, I have lived here my whole entire life. I moved for a couple years, but I'm back. I'm here helping my mother. She's sick. I said, okay, I have a couple questions about this neighborhood and about this house. And he looks me in the eyes and he says, is it about the ghost in the basement? <laughs> and I was like, no, but yes, kind of. The ghost in the basement has come up before. He said that he used to come over and play in that house as a kid and that things would literally fly across the room when they would play in the basement And that he was not allowed to come over because one time he almost got hit by something that flew across the room. I said, that does answer a couple questions, but I'm more concerned about this house. Like, do you know the history of this house? 
And he said, well, you know, I know that it's been here for a long time. I know that it was rebuilt uh, sometime in the 70s or the 80s. I said, oh, really? That's interesting. I said, do you know why it was rebuilt? And he said, oh, yeah, it uh, it burned to the ground and they had to rebuild it. And I was like, OK, well, that explains the smoke smell. And um, it was just a very eye opening conversation. And I think from that moment on, I sort of embraced the ghost. And I told my roommates, hey, I talked to the neighbor and he says there is a ghost here. Um, at least one that we know of. I thought probably there was more than that. We just started, we just embraced it. And I, we gave him a name and I do not remember what we called him. But obviously it was a male ghost because he had his Confederate outfit. And we just would say, hey, you know, like, Larry, let it be. Leave us alone. Stop holding the fridge shut. Stop walking across the kitchen. Stop making it smell like smoke. And after a while, I think he just sort of stopped. I don't really remember any instances of anything other than really simple, easy things. But I will tell you, I 100% believe that that house in Atlanta on Oakland Street was absolutely, definitely haunted. And it was a really cool experience. And now it's just a fun story to tell at parties and on my podcast. Do you ever wonder how much of your personal data is out there on the internet just for anyone to find? I promise it's more than you think. Your name, contact info, social security number, home address, even information about your family members. It's all being compiled by data brokers and openly sold online. This can lead to a lot of problems, including identity theft, phishing attempts, harassment, and unwanted spam calls. But now you can protect your privacy with Delete Me. Signing up for the service is super easy. Just provide Delete Me with exactly what information you want deleted, and their experts take it from there. They send you regular, personalized privacy reports showing what info they found, where they found it, and what they removed. I got my report, and I was floored with the results. Of the 105 data brokers they checked, 83 of them had my data. Delete Me then removed 173 listings of my personal data off the internet. And they make sure that it stays off too. Take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me at a special discount just for our listeners. Get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com slash MLM and use promo code MLM at checkout. The only way to get the 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash MLM and enter code MLM at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash MLM code MLM. Head over to quince.com and grab yourself a little something something and support the show by supporting our sponsors. The weather's getting warmer, so it's time to say goodbye to jackets and sweaters and say hello to lightweight fabrics and classic styles. I have been taking advantage of the beautiful weather and getting outside for daily walks, and I cannot say enough good things about the Flow Knit High Rise Boyfriend Jogger from Quince. Seriously, running errands, doing school pickups, swinging by the farmer's market, or taking Jaja for a stroll around the lake, these bad boys are versatile. I love the deep pockets, the high waistband, and the internal hidden drawstring. 
They're quick drying, moisture wicking, antimicrobial, and the four-way stretch makes them so comfortable. They're made with 88% recycled polyester and the Global Style Standard Certified Yarn dramatically lowers environmental impact by diverting landfill and ocean-bound plastic. Not to mention using recycled claim standard approved dyeing, washing, and manufacturing processes with low water and eco-friendly dyes. They have become an absolute favorite, and you can save up to 59% off the high-end counterpart by shopping with Quince. Throw on a cotton modal scoop neck tee and some sneakers, and you've got a perfect effortless outfit. Get warm weather ready with Quince. Go to quince.com slash MLM for free shipping on your order and 365 day returns. That's Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash MLM to get free shipping and 365 day returns. Quince.com slash MLM. Welcome back to another episode of Life After MLM. Today we are recording this live on the Patreon, another perk of joining the Patreon. I'm excited to do this. We're going to talk about a case that has been in the news. It came across my desk um, back in January with an email that I got, and I wanted to tell this story. I know we've been talking about ethical true crime this month. And because I don't really talk about murder and because I want to really have this victim forward understanding of this case and sort of all of the little nuances in it, I wanted to ask my friend Jamie from the podcast Murderish to come on and help me tell this story. So I want to welcome to the show, Jamie. How are you? I'm good. I'm so happy to be here. I was hoping one day that you and I would have the opportunity to collab on something. I figured it would happen eventually. And when, yeah, yeah. yeah I was like, I know, I, I know exactly who to talk to when I want to tell this story. And and I reached out and you were like, yeah, let's do it. Um, we had a little kerfuffle with my schedule last week and then it sort of kind of got bumped. And so yeah. for anybody who's like, hey, why is this episode a little late? That's why it was my fault. I take full responsibility <laughs> for overbooking myself in a very busy week. And I well, if anybody understands that, it is this girl. So I wasn't even bothered when you were like, oh, shoot, sorry. And then I couldn't hop on late because of my freaking crazy schedule. So, girl, I get it. You were a lot yeah, of Yeah, you're like, oh, thank goodness I needed this hour. <laughs> <laughs> probably, probably. <laughs> so back in January, I got an email from a listener named Sarah, and she sent me a Facebook post that I sent to you as well. It says, looks like the daughter of Stampin' Up! founder is about to be arrested for murder. Isn't that an MLM? And then I responded, holy shit. <laughs> That is uh, and we, <laughs> big news in the true crime world and the MLM, like the two worlds colliding. Yeah. And, you know, there are sometimes, and it's not because of the MLM, but there is that little bit of that Venn diagram crossover in these cases. And I've covered um, like Alexis Sharkey, who was with Monet and uh, Jody Arias, who was with prepaid legal. And then um, the Watts case, because there there was Thrive, they were in Thrive. And so these sort of come up and it's not because of the MLM, but because it sort of has this crossover. Um, a lot of people will say, Roberta, do you know about this? Roberta, have you heard about this? Roberta, are you going to cover this? And October is True Crime Month. And that's, the I think, for me, the perfect time. Also, um, throughout the year, more things have happened in this case. In, in August, Sarah sent me 
an email that said they finally arrested her and they're going to seek the death penalty. So that is, whoo, that's heavy. Yeah. Yeah. Very heavy, very heavy emails and stories that we're telling over here sometimes. Um, and so what I wanted to do first, before we get into this, is I want to talk a little bit about the MLM and it's called Stampin' Up. I think a lot of people remember these MLMs. Um, it's a crafting MLM for everybody who's watching on the Patreon. Uh, I'm going to share the website. This is their website, stampinup.com. It is an MLM website and it's very, very basic. You scroll to the bottom, you can see, you know, like join our team and, and absolutely it, it, it is a very basic MLM. You look at the website and you're like, yeah, this is very obviously an MLM. They yeah. have stamps, ink, paper, uh, lots of paper crafting things, lots of DIY stuff, cute stuff. Again, products are inconsequential in an MLM. So I understand people being really interested in this and, and wanting to be a part of this. I remember joining or not joining MLMs, but doing parties from these like stamping MLMs and craft MLMs in the 90s and the early 2000s with my friends. And again, like this is very just sort of on brand for these sort of things. Mm -hmm. So the case, because it's not it's not like MLM like related, like I said, it is the the person accused of this crime, which we're going to get into with you right now, the person accused of this crime. She is the daughter of the owners of Stampin' Up. So that is where that connection comes in. I don't know if I can cuss, but they're probably shitting their pants right now. Yeah, I could imagine. I could imagine just, and we'll get into it, right? Um, There's a lot of people who I I went and I wanted to check like what, I always go to Reddit sometimes when I'm looking for what people are thinking about about all these different things. And so- um, Share this tab. Love instead. a good Reddit thread. Love a good Reddit. So this is the um, card making Reddit. And it says, mm-hmm. I just heard that Stampin' Up is a multi level marketing scheme. Is anyone here a Stampin' Up uh, demonstrator? Is that true? And when you read the comments, a lot of people like to say, well, that MLM's not super predatory. Again, like all MLMs are the same at the very top, they're all predatory. But the comments are like, it's a light pyramid scheme. Like, <laughs> well, it's like, what level does it fall under? But it's still a pyramid scheme, in right. my opinion, my personal Absolutely. Humble opinion. Yes. It is really funny, though, because like on the card making Reddit, they say things like, oh, you know, it's, it's, it's just a light pyramid scheme. But if you go to anti MLM Reddit, Stampin' Up, even over there, they still agree. It's not as high pressure of some of the other MLMs, but it's still a shifty MLM. Yeah, um, so it goes from like MLM adjacent to like this subreddit. It's like, yeah, no, it is an MLM. And it may be, like you said, a little bit lighter, or maybe not as much pressure, but like still the same thing. Still right. the same shit show. Well, and then I saw this, which is one of the predatory things. Um, these are 47 Stampin' Up! used water-based ink pads that somebody is selling like that's a those are a lot of ink pads so i'm i'm even seeing this front loading from this mlm and sort of this is what's happening across the board and mlms people are buying way more than they need this person's trying to get rid of a lot of it so and again like you just it. absolutely at a very quick glance stampin up appears to be just like every other mlm with their front loading and the products and you know, it is. So it is, there's, there's no debate here on whether or not Stampin' Up! is an MLM. Mm-hmm. Um, but I just thought it was very interesting that there's these <laughs> conflicting opinions 
kind of, but also at the same time from completely different like card making groups and anti MLMers, but everybody is sort of on the same page. Like, yes, it is a pyramid scheme. Yes, it is an MLM. Is it one of the worst? But it's kind of like tying it into true crime, you know, like with murder, there's different levels. There's like voluntary involved manslaughter. There's second degree murder, first degree murder. So it's like, what level is this? But it's still murder. Like it's still it's still homicide. It is still an MLM. Right. Exactly. That is a great way to put it. It is still the same like potato, potato at the end of the day. Sure. So I reached out to you and I said, hey, let's you know, can you look into the story? You're the one that covers true crime. You know how to do it better than I do. I'm on the white collar side of things. So (laughs) (laughs) I wanted to uh, ask you to do that. And so let's get into this case. Can you tell us uh, kind of some of the meat and potatoes of this case in the very beginning? Yeah. So this case is surrounding uh, Jared Brightigan. He was murdered in February of 2022. Who was Jared Brightigan? He was a 33-year-old father of four. He was the senior design manager at Microsoft. So he held a very high position there. He lived in, at the time of his murder, he lived in St. Augustine, Florida with his wife, Kirsten Brightigan. This was his second marriage. And their two children, Bexley, who was two years old, as well as London, who was seven months old. And from all accounts, all I can see is that Jared was an extremely uh, involved father, husband. Uh, He loved his wife. He loved his children. He was a devout Mormon. There's tons of video footage out there that you can watch. And it's just absolutely heartbreaking with him rolling around with the kids and just being a very involved father. In 2015, so he was previously married to a woman named Shauna. I believe that's how you pronounce her name. It looks like Shanna when you read it, but I believe it's Shauna. They were married, they had two kids together, but they ended up getting a divorce in 2015. Um, Apparently their marriage had changed after they moved from Utah to Florida. Not sure exactly what happened, but I don't think any of it was good. They end up getting a divorce, but it was a very contentious divorce. Like they did not get along at all. There was very acrimonious. Um, And not only did Jared and Shauna not get along, but also Jared apparently did not get along with Shauna's new husband, Mario. So there was just a lot of tension surrounding those relationships. Now, Adam Brightigan is Jared's older brother. He described Jared as being a beloved father, a beloved son, brother, and uncle. He said that family was absolutely everything to Jared. It was the center of his world. uh, Jared always made them laugh. He was hilarious, apparently. And um, his older brother also described him as somebody who never gave up and was very focused. And I think that's evidenced by, you know, his successful career at Microsoft. Every picture that I've seen of Jared, he looks so happy-go-lucky. He looks just so, like, in love with his life and his family and his kids. Like, he's smiling. It is just a horrific tragedy. It's a horrific tragedy, and um, he absolutely was you know, he had goals in life. He had family who he loved. He had people who depended on him and who miss him dearly now that he's gone. And when you know the details of this case, and of course it's all alleged at this point because no trial has taken place, but if everything that the prosecution seems to be bringing forward for an upcoming trial against the perpetrators or alleged perpetrators, if everything there is true, it's absolutely just disgusting, selfish, and heartbreaking. This is the best way to describe it. Yeah. 
So on February 16th of 2022, uh, 33-year-old Jared Brightigan was at was driving home from his ex Shauna's house. He had apparently just dropped off their two children at her house. And as he was driving home, that and that's Abby and Liam, their nine-year-old twins. As he was driving home from dropping the children off at his ex's house, he spotted a he spotted a tire in the road, which was odd. So he got out to move it. Uh, and then he was ambushed by somebody who shot him and killed him in front of his two-year-old daughter, Bexley, who was strapped into her car seat in the vehicle. She was not harmed, thank goodness. Um, but he was shot at close range several times and he's killed. And his poor daughter, Bexley, I guess a passerby spotted you know, what was going on and was able to grab the two-year-old and you know, bring her to authorities. It, it's, yeah, I know you're a mom. You're going to be cry. <laughs> oh yeah. I just, yeah. as a mom, some uh, of these cases are just, I just, I couldn't even imagine. I couldn't even imagine that poor baby sitting there. We car. all know as human beings, as parents, as anybody with a beating heart knows children should never suffer anything like this or even close to it. I mean, we just want them to live in fluffy rainbows and clouds and have a perfect, you know what I mean? You just want everything because they deserve for everything to be perfect in their lives. But certainly something like this is just absolutely devastating. And it just adds to the callousness of whoever did this was okay with doing it in front of a toddler. It's disgusting. And I really hope that Jared's family gets justice because they certainly deserve that. Mm-hmm. So he's, he's murdered in the street. His child is there. A passerby comes and sees what has happened. Um, what happens after that? So after that, there was an arrest. So apparently 61 year old Henry Tenon, I don't know if you, if I am pronouncing that correctly, Henry T E N O N was arrested and charged with second degree murder in connection with Jared's murder. And apparently Tenen had allegedly rented a home that was owned by Mario Fernandez, which is Shauna's now estranged husband. So Shauna, after she got a divorce from Jared, married a man named Mario Fernandez. They, at the time of Jared's murder or maybe afterward, they are considered estranged in many of the reports that I've read. And apparently the man who was arrested and charged with second degree murder in connection with Jared's murder, he had previously rented a home from Mario. So the guy who's been arrested has a connection to Jared's ex-wife's husband. And apparently, you know, as reported, Tenen has agreed to testify against Mario, the estranged ex I guess they're estranged of Shauna Gardner Fernandez. And that is, and I'm sorry, his full name is Mario Fernandez Saldana. So I hope that made sense that it sounds like the man who was arrested has a, a, a possible connection as a lessee of a home owned by Mario Fernandez Saldana, who was married to Shauna, which is Jared, the victim's ex. And apparently this guy has agreed to testify at least against Mario. Now, I wonder if he has dirt also on Shauna, because we know now subsequently Shauna has also been arrested. So it's looking like Shauna, Jared's ex, and her husband may or may not have had something to do with this. Maybe they hired 
this guy, Tenen, to do their dirty work. And maybe the tire was placed in the road purposely, and they knew that he, Jared, would be driving home at that time because he had just dropped the kids off at Shauna's house. They know the, ro- the route he drove. Maybe they purposely placed the tire on the road so that they could ambush him, so that Jared would get out of his vehicle and it would make it easier for whoever did this to shoot and kill him. That is what's being reported. And again, this hasn't gone through trial, but I'm sure we're going to learn a lot more. And like I said earlier, the owners or whatever you call the founders of Stampin' Up have got to be shitting their pants right now because like, this is the last thing they want on their hands is their daughter being arrested for a potential murder. Right. Of her own children's father. Absolutely. In front of his child. It is really like, because the case is ongoing, everything is alleged. But what you're saying to me as somebody who is following the story, putting something out in the road to encourage somebody to get out of their vehicles so that you are able to ambush them on the route you knew they'd be taking that exact moment. It seems premeditated. Yeah. Yeah. That's the way that it appears. And it's interesting because Mario uh, Fernandez Saldana, he's been charged with second degree murder. Now, if the, I would imagine if the prosecutor can find enough evidence, they might maybe elevate that to first degree. Because certainly, if this is all true, everything that's been alleged and reported that I just broke down to you, if it's all true, that is very clear first degree murder. That is premeditation at its finest, you know, for lack of a better term. So it's interesting that he's only been charged with second degree murder, but maybe that's just because they just haven't gathered enough evidence yet. And now he, he might turn on Shauna and Mario. And maybe once they get that information, maybe then it'll be elevated. And you're saying that with Shauna, now I haven't read up too much, you know, on the court documents since her arrest, but you're saying that she, they, the prosecution may potentially be going after the death penalty. And if that's the case, that tells me that's very likely a first degree murder charge, but I don't know. I have not right. read up on it. Yeah. I mean, again, it's because it is ongoing. It's a lot of hearsay or a lot of rumors and allegations of things. Um, I, I would be very curious to see where this case goes and, and how long it is on trial and how long it, it, it ends up taking to get some answers or because they plead it, out right there may oh not even God. be a trial which is always so it's like it's good and bad because you if you put yourself in the victim's shoes which i certainly cannot but if i just imagine for a second being in their shoes the victim's family to go through trial is also devastating i've been on a jury for a first degree murder trial before i was the jury foreman and and it's devastating to see the family of the victim sitting there and looking at the crime scene photos. It's absolutely re-traumatizing just all over again, opening up that wound that's already so deep. So there, that's bad. But however, on the other hand, when they plead out, that's also kind of like a letdown as well. You know, I, I would imagine to the family when there's no trial, I wonder if they feel like, you know, they can get any sense of peace when it, they just plead out and maybe don't get as long a sentence as they would maybe if they had gone through trial. So I don't know, and I cannot speak for the victim's family, but this thing hasn't gone to trial yet. And I wonder if it even will. I wonder if they'll plead out. So yeah, it remains I'm, to be seen. I'm curious about that as well. And and, and really the timeline of, of everything, because there's so many people involved, you know, is it a murder for hire? Is it a 
you owe me a favor. Like, I don't even know. Like, there's so much speculation. Um, and I don't really like to speculate, especially with true crime. But um, it just, for the innocent bystander who's watching and looking at evidence that has been presented in the media, it is, it seems pretty much like, yeah, this was a premeditated murder yeah. for whatever reasons, you know, um, mm -hmm. just, or just like I said earlier, just a horrible, horrible tragedy for, for Jared's family, for his, for his children and just all around, just really, really heartbreaking. It is heartbreaking. And there's this eerie video and I can't remember, there was some sort of interview that Shauna did after Jared's death, but before she either, you know, fell upon suspicion or uh, certainly before she got arrested. And it's kind of reminded me of that Chris Watts video footage where He's trying to act like, oh yeah, just bring her home. I just want her home. I'm paraphrasing, but you, you can look at him and go, this something's off here. Something doesn't seem like he really does want her home. You know, in hindsight, is always twenty twenty. But it's like you see this interview that Shauna did, and she's like, his kids miss him so much, or something like that. And there also seems to be something missing there. But of course, I can't judge. Everybody reacts to grief differently, right? But right. but I just my own personal opinion, my instincts told me like, ah, she seems a little cold, you know, but of course that doesn't mean anything. That's just my own read on it by watching her. But it was like, oh man, something just seems off. And then of course we know that she was arrested not long after that. And I immediately, when you were talking about that before you even mentioned Chris Watts's name, the piece of shit family annihilator, uh, I was like, yeah, like this is very much like that porch interview with Chris Watts where he's just, I, I knew the second he opened his mouth, I was like, he he's involved. Like yeah. you just know. Yeah. It was just like something like that. It, it feels exactly the same. Yeah. It felt, it felt very similar to that. Well, I'm definitely, I want to be keeping up on this and as it goes. And, you know, if we do have some closure on this, I would love to have you back to talk a little bit more in depth when we have more facts and not just yeah. allegations and, and um, assumptions of things. But I want yeah. to talk to you about being a true crime podcaster because it's a lot. It's so much. This, this whole month of me telling other people's stories and having them come on the show and tell their stories as well has been so heavy. And, you know, I talk about cults. And those are so heavy in, in a completely different way, psychological mm -hmm. way more. Mm -hmm. This is, it has been such a gut-wrenching, heart-wrenching. I can't even, the amount of tears that I shed with the victims as they told their stories. How, how do you do this day in and day out? It is, I have to take, I can never take a true break. You know, I release episodes, uh, every other Monday and then of course other episodes on Fridays. But so the, so it keeps the content keeps coming, but I literally how I take breaks, it's usually twofold. It's I watch trash TV 
And when I and I know it's like it's funny. It's like because then I can watch mindless. I watch reality TV and I watch it all um, with my husband. And we literally just judge whoever's on the screen, like for fun. I'm like, oh, whose side do you want? Whose side do you want? You know, like we watch TV and I listen to podcasts that have nothing to do with true crime. I do. It's rare these days that I listen to a true crime podcast. Every now and then, if I'm interested in a case, I certainly will. There's one that I'm tracking right now. Um, that I'm obsessed with, but um, I take mental breaks by wh whatever I do on the podcast, the, the scripts that I write, and then I record it and I put the content out there. I, in between that time, I am not typically binging and consuming true crime because it is just, you, you can't just stay in that world in, in your headspace. I mean, it is absolutely so dark. And if you're an empathetic person and I am, and, and you seem to be as well, um, you can't help but just get overwhelmed by it. And so, of course, I can't even imagine being in the actual victim's family's shoes, you know, to how yeah. they feel. So, yeah, you, I just have to take breaks. And the other way that I take breaks is I hang out with my 10-year-old and she freaking cracks me up. And I just, I almost forget for a moment that like bad things are going on in the world. And she tells me all the drama that's going on in school. This girl said this, that boy did this. He was mean. Oh my gosh, you're not gonna, you know, I, and I cannot get enough of it. Like we literally sit there and gossip about what is the hot goss in fourth grade. <laughs> <laughs> it's like so mindless, but it helps me to not stay immersed in the true crime world because it is so dark. Do you find being in this, the same generation that I am and having children that you find that you're a much more compassionate parent than your parents were? Yes, because you and I grew up in the generation of our parents like dust it off, you're fine, you're gonna live, yeah, whatever. So, and so if I go home and tell, like there could be actual bullying going on, like very dangerous bullying in our day. But if you go home and tell your parents, they're going to be like, okay, we'll work it out. You're just going to have to work it out. Like this is just life skills. You're just going to have to work it out. And it's like, no, but like they literally physically harmed me, mom, you know, and I'm, yeah. So I definitely feel like I am a lot more progressive in my, like, I always try to validate Stevie's feelings. Like, even if it sounds so petty and sometimes I tell her, I'm like, babe, this is not a big deal in the grand scheme of things. I, you know, I hear you and your feelings are valid. I totally understand why that upset you, but I don't want you to stay in this pettiness for over something so small. Um, but I do try to validate her feelings and not be like, oh, just brush it off. Anyway, go do yeah. the dishes. <laughs> Rub some dirt on it. You'll be okay. Yeah, totally. yeah. yeah. absolutely. Yeah. It's so it. I definitely think that we're raising our kids a little different. It is a very interesting space because you're such a compassionate person and you have to be really to cover these cases over and over again, unless you've got some sort of comedy true crime podcast where you're reacting to other content, which, Hey, super fun. It is. But when you're, when you're covering these, like in real time, these stories talking and, and, and trying to be really victim forward and telling these stories, it is so heavy. It is mm -hmm. so heavy and it's, yeah. um, it's, it's good to know that you're, you know, that you are sharing that empathy and that compassion with your children as, as you're raising them and giving them that space. It makes me feel really good to, to hear that because therapy is cool. You guys, therapy is oh so gosh. cool. It is therapy is super cool. Another way that I've actually recently, which has been super fun for me, like, as you know, murderish is a very serious show. Like I just get straight to the facts. I don't, there's no banter. I don't give opinions. I just, 
I give you the story. Um, but every other Friday, I just started like this uh, serial, we call ourselves the serial streamers. And it's a true crime TV club. So it's kind of like a book club, but it is a true crime TV club for people like you and me who are out there binging, you know, the cult documentaries and stuff like that, um, true crime documentaries. And so every other Friday, I kind of break down these documentaries, but in a very casual way, I get to be my normal smart ass self, I can give I give lots of opinions, hot takes, you know, we laugh a little bit because sometimes there is like the fire fest. Oh my God. So I just covered fire fest. <laughs> I gave you a shout out by the way. I my saw. Most recent, yeah. I was like, girl, my girl, Roberta Blevins can tell you all about scammy McScammers and Billy McFarlane, like this guy. So I just covered that one. Of course I laughed my ass off because who can ever forget Andy, the oh, Andy God. King, the all American water hero. <laughs> <laughs> oh God. I cannot. So anyway, I take breaks there too. And I release those episodes on murderish and they're much lighter, more fun, more, you know, just a lot more lighthearted than the other ones. Yeah. See that for me, a lot of times the stuff that I cover because they're being scams or frauds, like with people that went to prison, it's like a comedy of errors and Firefest is such the grift that keeps on grifting. Like it's just, there's so much there being stranded and the way that everything was handled. I mean, when you really start talking to people that were involved and you really start learning the truth about what happened and how every single corner was cut, every single thing was just assumed it would be fine. It just is, it's a comedy of errors. It's, it's horrific because there are true victims there. Sure. But the locals of the Island, of course. Oh yeah. Yeah. With Billy and his hubris, and how he thinks he can just do no wrong and just brush it off and move on. I mean, he's already had so many more scams since he's gotten out of jail or prison, you know? Yeah, NYC, VIP access, like that old, and, and um, Pirate. It? Magnesis was bullshit yeah, Magnesis, too. Like yeah. all of it is a scam. And also how did Jaw Rule, who I call Jaw Tool, cause the dude, I'm sorry. <laughs> um, how did he not face charges? Like that is a mystery I, I don't understand, but um, I would love to get into the weeds of that. But yeah, Billy, and how is Firefest 2 being advertised? Ja Rule never even showed up to fire. He never got on a plane and made it to the Bahamas that second time. Which he is never what's... touched ground. So it's like he saw the writing on the wall at some point, but certainly he helped, it seems, get people there oh, yeah. and scammed out of all their money and no food and water and all this shit. So that is just wild. But you're you're right. It's just mind-boggling that uh Ja Rule himself was not even there. He right? wasn't, he was like, yeah, no. I'm out. And if if Kylie Jenner has to pay reparations for that orange square that she, you know, promoted this trash fest, right? And Ja Rule should have to do the exact same thing because he's he's in all the footage, cheersing and making jokes and being like, it's gonna be so good. And as soon as it was very evident that it was a scam, he was like, I never meant to scam anybody. And he totally took back and 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 didn't really take any accountability for any of his part. And no, he was and there he from, say, you've been there since Magnesis. It's, from it's the wild. beginning. And so like on that conference call in the aftermath, when one of the employees at Fire Media was like, yeah, this seems like fraud because we didn't deliver on like really anything that we had promised. And Ja Rule's like, yeah, uh, uh, no, that I wouldn't call that fraud. I would call that, what the hell did he say? He was like splitting hairs. I would call that, um, fuck. I can't think I of it, but it was like, was, he basically yeah. admitted wrongdoing, but he wouldn't call it fraud. 
but he called it right. something else that's almost as bad. <laughs> right. Like, he was like, were, we were just scamming people. It wasn't fraud. No, yeah, just- <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. I'm like, what was the word? But that's essentially like what he was saying is like he used a different term, which was just as bad, but he didn't want to call it fraud. It's like, dude, this was very clear fraud. Right. Um, it just makes it's wild. But the, the jokes just write themselves from the promo video. It was beautiful. Like I wanted to be there when I saw the pro. I was like, dude, I got it. This looks beautiful. White sandy beaches. Great. And then when you see what they actually saw when all the attendees are on that bus and they see this the site for the first time, they're like, turn the bus around. <laughs> and that cheese, the, the sad and soggy cheese sandwich will forever live in my heart. <laughs> it's, I, the, the, it's just the fact that anybody defends it is like, this was our best effort with how much money that they had. Uh, you know, I want to know what Billy's jet ski budget looked like because it looked like that's pretty much all he was doing was zipping around the island on a jet ski and not getting any work done. Yeah, but. him him and Jaw <laughs> Tool were just broing it up, cheersing and high fiving and demanding all the models do this and that and on the yacht and jet ski. They, they literally looked like such idiots. I'm sorry, I feel so strongly about this. Like when you watch this promo video. You look like two bumbling idiots who are insecure and just want to bro it up and make yourselves inflate your egos, but you have no clue how to pull this thing off. No clue. Like you didn't even get close, dude. Like you did not even get close. I cannot. Oh, it's too much. So in terms of being a true crime podcaster, what has been one of those cases that has really stuck with you the longest? Uh, It's, so easy it rolls off the tip of my tongue and that would be the gabriel fernandez case and i don't mean to say that lightly that that is just that is the case i will never forget i will never be able to erase what i learned about that case i will never not think about gabriel fernandez i mean it's the weirdest thing i've said this before on my own podcast because i covered his case on murderish i i would have visions like as a as a mother as a parent myself after I learned what happened, I would just be like, you know how you're driving in your car and you might be like daydreaming. I'd be maybe stopped at a long red light and I would be having these visions of somebody pulling up in a car and Gabriel's in the car and like I'm able to grab him and save him from what's about to happen to him. It sound, I know it sounds weird, but as a mother, I just could I'm obsessed with, God, somebody could have saved him. Like I wish that we could have just, and that teacher tried you know, his teacher, bless her heart. Like she, she tried so hard um, to save him, but was unsuccessful. So I will never, never, never. It was the worst case I have ever learned of. And I will link that in the, in the show notes for anybody that wants to dive into that and, but be prepared. (laughs) Yeah. Trigger warning. And I, I, I think I give a trigger warning at the beginning, but, but it's not for the faint of heart and it's, yeah. But I wanted to, cover it to keep his name alive. I don't want anybody to ever forget about him. And it's overwhelming as a true crime content creator because there's all these cases and it's overwhelming because you just want them never to be forgotten. You want all their stories to be told. You want them to be told factually. You want them to just, um, it's overwhelming. And I wish that I could do more. Um, but I do, I am very impressed with certain organizations. I mean, you have the innocence project. Um, you have people like, you know, lover or hater. I, personally um, look up to her, but Rabia Chaudhry 
fighting. She's a badass and, um, you know, fighting for Adnan. And you could say whatever you want about her because there's people who have a lot to say about her. But what I see is somebody who is dogged and persistent and, and fights for justice and never gets tired and just keeps going and actually affects change. And we saw yeah. that in real time in Adnan's case. So um, there are certainly people out there fighting the good fight in the true crime world. Absolutely. So how do you feel? Uh, because one of our topics this month has been ethical true crime and covering these cases in an ethical victim forward way. So how do you think more true crime content creators could be more ethical in their reporting? It's simple and it, it should go without saying, but it should be factual. It should be thoughtful. It should be victim focused as much as you can learn about the victim. Talk about that. And that's really it. Like it's that, I want to say it's that easy, but that is it. Just, just engage with empathy, tell it factually, speak about the victim, make it victim focused, um, and, and thoughtful. Remember that the victim's family could be listening. That is always what you have to, when you go to write a script and you go to cover a story, understand that they could be listening and that you want what you would want to do their family member and them justice. Well, I have like my regular questions I ask at the end, but before yeah. I ask these questions, I want you to let us know where we can find you on the internet. Yes. So you can find me. I have a website, murderish.com, but really I'm very active on Instagram and TikTok. I'm at Jamie on air. That's J-A-M-I on air. Um, I'm on there just about every day and you can find my podcast murderish anywhere. Podcasts are available. You can also find murderish on YouTube at Jamie on air. I just launched a new podcast called lipstick and lies with my friend, Melissa Moore. Uh, for those who don't know, her father was the um, happy face serial killer. And she oh and I have become, God. yeah, and she did a wonderful podcast called Happy Face. So if you haven't listened to that, listen to that. She and I have partnered up for Lipstick and Lies, and we just launched that a few months ago. And um, you can find that wherever podcasts are available as well. Wow, look at you. I was, it's always <laughs> fun to like see what my friends are doing. And they're like, oh, I just started this podcast and this podcast. And I'm doing this, like this true crime umbrella, because I do kind of fall under the true crime about umbrella with the true con topics. Yeah. But it is just such a really lovely, supportive, wonderful space. And I, I really thank you for taking the time to come on the show and to talk about this with me and to help cover what we know so far in this MLM adjacent crime. Yeah, I, and I appreciate the opportunity and I absolutely think you're one of the good ones. You know, you just, you just, oh, when you know, you. you know, and you, you know your stuff and you're fighting the good fight. I'm absolutely right there with you. I, I hate an MLM moment. Uh, it is very culty in my opinion. And I just want people who are in it to get out, not because I'm judging you because it's better. You're better off. That absolutely. is what's, in my opinion, that is what's good for you. So I appreciate you fighting that fight. Thank you. Yeah. Um, so we've got these rapid fire questions. I kind of edit them for the topic. Since we're talking about true crime, we're going to do some true crime. What is one word that encompasses how you feel about the true crime space? Grateful. Give me some advice to somebody who's listening and thinking about starting maybe their own true crime podcast. What would some advice for them be? 
I would say um, think long and hard, be, be strategic about your format. When I launched Murderish, I didn't know if I was going to be like with a co-host and it was going to be kind of casual. I didn't know if it was going to be scripted and just me. Well, I, I landed on a scripted, you know, uh, narrated show. Um, but what I didn't realize was that, oh yeah, but that means I have to go out and like spend a lot of time researching and to every, and I have no problem doing that. That's how I started Murderish. But it's like, if I want to drop an episode every two weeks, that means like it takes about a week to research and then it takes a few days to write a script. That wheel is constantly turning and it comes up fast. So if you don't think that you have time in your schedule to do something like that, consider a format that's a lot less research and, uh, you know, heavy. Yeah, that's really good yeah. advice. We're going to throw it back. We have the MLM question we have to ask. Jamie, what is the worst MLM in your opinion and experience? Okay, I give bombastic side eye to every MLM. Okay, like I literally could not hate them more. But I don't know all the ones that exist because I really am not in that world. And I've actually never joined one. I came close. The worst one that I've heard of recently, what's the one that Jesse Lee was the prove ketones it. prove it. Mm -hmm. I don't know if that's the worst one. I'm sure you could make an argument for 10 others that are way worse. I just uh, think that one is uh, super scammy. And also like, these are people like, do they have a health certificate? Like, do they have like a health and nutrition training and certification to be telling you that you should drink this stuff that puts you in ketosis? I don't know. I just think it's really dangerous and gross. Yeah, I think so too. I'm not a fan of any MLMs, but a lot of people will say the health and wellness ones are just so bad because you just have people who bought a business in a box thinking that they were going to be a small business owner, giving health advice, and it's not always really conducive to positive results. So agree, like the Shakeology, like the, the coaches, yeah. they call them coaches. That's deceptive. Like what gives you the type, like what gives you the expertise to be a health coach? and be telling somebody that you need to replace a meal with this shake that's gonna make you poop your pants, number one. Um, but like, why, how is that? It just sounds like disordered eating to me and trigger warning, I'm sorry, you know, for anybody, yeah. but um, it does not sound good. It sounds dangerous. Yeah. What is the hardest lesson that you have learned being a podcaster in the true crime space? Oh my gosh, the hardest lesson that I have learned being about, um, it's going to sound so lame, but that I, for the first four years was so lazy about social media because I just was like, I don't have time. I'm just, I'm already researching and writing and recording and blah, blah, blah. And it's just not something I wanted to do. I have since delegated and I have help with that and I am way more present and I have, re I don't want to say reaped the rewards, but I have seen my business grow. Now I sound like a hun bot. <laughs> <laughs> every like meeting that they have it's like if you want to grow your business you need to go to these events and you need to anyway i have seen my business grow i have seen my podcast grow because i am more present on social media and it's not what people want to hear probably because it is a job in itself but um i have been showing up consistently for the last year and a half and i just have seen um it's very beneficial i love it and then the final question is the positive takeaway from your time in the true crime space? Oh my gosh, the friends that I've met. That's so easy. I have, 
I never expected because you're behind. Most podcasters are like by themselves in a sad, dark closet recording. <laughs> and it's not a very social game. Like it really is not you're behind like, and you know what I mean? So like, I had no clue that once I got into podcasting that I would make lifelong friends that I have had to my house who have spent the night at my house, who I would have like these, I just made such, such great friends and we all have each other's backs and we have all helped each other grow. And we have all been there when somebody's down or whatever. It's it just, so yeah, the connections and the friends that I've made through podcasting is super cool. I love it. Thank you so much, Jamie. Everybody go subscribe to Murderish. Listen to a really great ethical true crime podcast. I'm going to leave all the links for everything in the show notes so that everybody can find Jamie as easily as possible. I want to say thank you to the Patreon people who came and watched live or watched the replay. Really appreciate. We're going to do more of these in 2024. So if this is something you're interested in being a part of this live podcasting experience, please check out our Patreon and subscribe if that's something you're into. Thank you again so much. This has been a pleasure. I've had so much fun. Thank you. I, I appreciate the opportunity, Roberta. Thank you so much for listening to Life After MLM. Don't forget to like, subscribe, and share. And follow us on social media at Life After MLM Podcast or visit our new website at lifeaftermlmpod.com. You can find all of the links to follow in our show notes. Life After MLM is produced by Roberta Blevins. Audio editing is done by the lovely Kayla Craven. Video editing by the indescribable RK Gold. And Michelle Carpenter is our triple emerald princess of robots. If you have a story about a cult, fraud, scam, or MLM and want to be on the show, please hit us up. We would love to help you tell your story and start your healing journey in life after MLM. See you next time, Hans.